Matthew chapter 4. Is that where I told you to go? Okay. Verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, what we're talking about, really, we're not going to go back there. Start, started in John chapter 15, where Jesus told his disciples, You didn't choose me, I chose you. And I chose you and ordained you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So we're really talking about the vision that God has for this church. And since this church is not the four walls or how many walls we have in this building, it's not the ceiling, the floor, the chairs, the carpet, the things. The church is you and me. It's us. It's the body of Christ that He has gathered here and assigned here together. You know you are assigned to a church by Him. Whether you follow that assignment, it's up to you. But that's your assignment. And that's what we're going to be held accountable for is doing what we were called to do where we were called to do it. Just as your body has different parts that are assigned in a certain location for a certain purpose, that's true with the body of Christ. And we've talked about that over the last year or so. But we're looking at what the assignment is now, which is another word for vision. And, and, and the assignment is that we have been called by Him. And we're called by Him and ordained by Him to bear fruit. And so we're going back to look at the disciples' calling. And that's what took us to Matthew chapter 4. We see in there, Jesus says these things to them. He said, it says they were fishermen. Verse 19. And He said to them, follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. And we've broken that down into three parts. The first part is what so often we miss when it comes to vision. You'll see pastors and leaders and leadership conferences, both in the business world and in the church world, you know, casting vision, talking about what vision is. But his vision is really simple. And if we miss this step, we miss everything. We can do all kinds of good things, but we don't do what we're called to do. And the first part of answering his call is his call is simply to follow him. It's so simple. To follow him. Well, I don't know where we're going. Follow him. It's that simple. The disciples had no vision but to follow Him. That was their vision. And guess what? He got them where they needed to be, often in spite of themselves. So the vision is to follow Him. That's a personal relationship. It's not to join a cause. It's not to become part of a movement. It's not to get hooked into some great adventure. It is to simply follow Him. A personal relationship with Him. It is, is follow me. Then the next thing we saw that he said is, if you follow me, we, taught, we saw what they had to do. To follow him, they immediately left their nets. You can't follow him and hang on to where you were. You can't follow him and hang on to everything you've relied on, trusted in, has been meaningful to you in your life. You have to be willing to let go of everything to follow him. Now, he brought them back later on to the point where they were still had their nets, they still had their business, but they left that first to follow him. So often what you leave, he'll give back to you. Just like Abraham had to let go of Isaac on that altar, and God gave him back to him because it was God's will for him to have him, but God doesn't want anything above him in your heart. So they leave everything. Then the next thing he says when they were willing to do that is if you follow me, if you leave everything, then I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, now that you left it, you go become fishers of men and then come back. He says, no, if you follow me, I will make you this. That tells us we can't make ourselves into it. And we're going to see more of that, begin to see more of that today. And then last time we talked about what it is he's making us into, which is fishers of men. God cares about people. He uses things, but he uses things to reach people. So the blessing that God has in your life, the blessings that he wants you to have, the resources we have are all for the sake of reaching people, blessing people, helping people. Because that's what matters to God. And I'll be very, I'll confess to you, I had to make a paradigm shift a few years ago as God began to get that through to me. Because I saw things in terms of programs. I'm a very goal-oriented, focused person. Doesn't mean I always accomplish them, but I, that's where my focus is. And, and if it something doesn't fit into the purpose, then I'm not interested in it. 
And so I was so focused on getting, accomplishing things, I was losing sight of the people involved in the process. There's an old expression that ministers would joke with one another. The ministry is great except for the people. <laughs> except that that's, and I don't believe that here. This is a blessed church. I'm a blessed pastor. But, but, you know, people, you know, the problems of people can wear on you after a while and you just kind of, you carry them around and realize, you know, remember Lafayette Skills one time says, I have a sermon I keep in my back pocket, which is you're all going to hell. <laughs> I've had it, you know. <laughs> and it's just, we're human, all right? Now, I don't really think that, but I just, sometimes problems of people get you worn out and that's usually because you've taken your eyes off of him and you've got your eyes on where everybody else is instead of on, oh, following Him. That's right. Yeah. You follow Him and the rest of the stuff doesn't wear you out. It doesn't distract you. And so, but we're, we, you know, we get distracted. We're all human. And so I've forgotten why I got off on that rabbit trail, but it was a, it made me feel better anyway. Oh, and God had to get through to me. No, no, John, I care about people. I care about the people. Watch Jesus in His ministry. He was moved by the people. What was going with the people? We looked last time in John chapter 4. He's an example of of a fisherman for people. Because in John 4 is the story where he's on his way from Jerusalem up to Galilee. Why? Because they want to kill him in Jerusalem. So it's not like he's just on a tour somewhere. He's getting away from the men that want to kill him. And so he stops, has this conversation in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And we went through all of that last week. We saw how he put the bait out. Because you don't catch fish with an empty hook. You have to bait it. And bait is something that the fish want. Enough so they'll bite what you have for them to pull them in. And we're going to see more of that today. And, and the, the disciples come and the woman, is, he's changed her whole focus. But, it's, but he, had, hey, he was caring about her. See, people know whether you care about them or not. You can make all kinds of mistakes if you care about people. But if you don't care about people, you better not make mistakes because they're looking for your mistakes. And Jesus cared about her and she could sense that. And so she gets so excited, she runs into the city to tell people about this man that was telling her things that he knew about her that there's no other way. He, and they, she brought them all out. And a revival starts. And my point is, he stopped his schedule, which was to get away from the men in Jerusalem to try to kill him. And he spent two days in that city teaching them and reaching the lost. Why? Because he cared more about them than, getting, to, than getting, to, getting away from those that were trying to kill him. So we're learning how to be fishers of men. This is the time, this is the hour, this is our purpose. This is my purpose in life, is to teach you and me along with you, because I'm coming on this journey along with you. I'm not some great fisher of men, but I've got to learn to be. We've got to be fishers of men. That's why we're here. We're out there to reach those that He wants to reach. And we're going to see today that He needs us, and even more so next time, that He needs us. All right. That's kind of where we've been. So we're going to begin today. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 1. We've looked at what Jesus called them to do, we, uh, to be fishers of men. To, he'll make them to follow him, and he'll make them fishers of men. We've seen last week an example of Jesus fishing for a woman in this case to catch her, to bring her into the kingdom of God. Now today we're going to look at the disciples as he's about to release them to do it. Acts chapter one. Verse four. And being assembled together, with them. So the disciples are assembled together, and Jesus is with them now. He's been crucified, raised from the dead, and he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard of me. Now, we're not going to take the time to go back, but if you go back into Luke 24, he tells them that he is going to ask the Father, and he's going to, the Father is going to send to them the promise of the Holy Spirit to empower them. And that's what he's referring to here. Notice he says, Don't move. He's trained them, but don't go do anything yet until you've received the promise of the Father, which you've heard of me. 
And he's going to explain in verse 5 what it is. For John truly baptized with water. John immersed them in water for the remission of their sins. But you will be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they came together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, see, they still don't understand the mission yet. They still think this is about the political situation in Israel at the time, and that God is, this is the Messiah, He's come to restore Israel's to its own dominance, to its own ascendancy, to its own autonomy, and to deliver them from the bondage and oppression of the Roman government, which had been, they'd have them bondage for years. They still don't understand. Verse 7, And Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. It's still not for us to know that, although He says elsewhere that we can get a hint of the times by looking at the atmosphere of what's going on around us. But you shall... So notice He's trying to change their focus. They're getting distracted already. They're saying, is it time for Israel to be delivered? And he said, no, 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 no. Wait, listen to me. I haven't finished the instructions yet. Did your children ever do that with you? You Did you ever do that as a child? Your parents start to tell you something in your mind. You you think you know where they're going, so you jump ahead. That's what the disciples were like. And he said, no, 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 no. Let me finish my instructions to you, because I'm not going to be here much longer. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, which is right where they were, the city, in Judea, which was the, the area of the country they were in, in Samaria, that's the nor- one just north of it, and then to the ends of the earth. This is their commissioning. You shall be witnesses to me. Some translations say of me. My witness. Now let's talk about, because we're talking about catching fish. Let's talk about what a witness is. And I'll explain it to you from a legal point of view. In a courtroom, what a witness does. In a court trial, you have two parties, usually, sometimes more, trying to prove facts to the judge. Because the law sets out if, if, if the facts are A then you get this one result. But if the facts are B, you get another result. So it all hinges on what happened. Sometimes it's really simple. Sometimes it's immensely complex. There's a huge lawsuit going on now between Apple and Samsung over copyright violations. Very complicated case, imagine. But there's sometimes it's very simple. So I want to reduce it down to the simple. And so, in most cases, you have a jury that's going to decide the facts. Now, the jury wasn't there when this event happened. The judge wasn't there when this event happened. The lawyers weren't there when this event happened. So the lawyer's job is to establish in the minds of the jury what happened in the minds of people that weren't there what the truth is. And the law allows that lawyer certain things to use to try to convince the jury what the truth is about what happened. And one of those devices are witnesses. Ultimately, it all comes down to evidence. Evidence is something that that gives credence to or points to the facts that you want to say were the truth. So the blood-stained knife with the fingerprints of the defendant on it, they tend to point when the blood type is on there as the type of the decedent. All those things tend to point to to the, the truth that the guy's guilty. But we didn't see him stab the decedent, did we? So all we've got is evidence Evidence is something that stands in the place of actually seeing it or knowing it yourself. And it points toward the truth of what wants to be proved. You following me so far? This is law school trial procedure evidence 101, okay? You'll all get a certificate when you leave here. 
<laughs> won't mean anything, but you'll get a certificate. All right. That's, that's, that's called tangible evidence. You can see the knife. But there are a lot of things you want to establish that you don't have some touch thing you can touch to see. So you get people who go and sit on a stand called a witness stand or stand in it. And their role is to testify. Give a testimony of what they've seen or what they've heard. With a few exceptions, and we'll forget about those. They're not allowed to talk about anything that they don't have first-hand knowledge about. It's called hearsay. They're not allowed to talk about anything that they didn't personally see or they didn't personally hear. A number of years ago, one of our sons was working at a, at a um, retail store around here, and there was a woman, and there was a woman and her, and her daughters had a scheme to, to rob the store, had a bunch of shopping carts lined up, and had them lined up to go through the checkout counter. He was checking them out, and the daughter created a disturbance, and while she did, the mother took the carts out and put them in their... And my son st- saw it, called security, and they stopped her. So a year or so later, there's a trial, and I went to the trial with him because he's going to be a witness. And I'm sitting there, we're waiting a long time, and I, I decided to start asking him questions. The prosecutor should have asked him. I said, did you tell me what you saw? And I started to hear what he saw. I said, did you actually see her take the goods out the door? Well, no, I didn't. I said, whoa, you got a problem. So I went to the prosecutor. I said, do you know that you asked him what he actually saw? He said, well, no. I said, ask him now before you put him on the stand. And he, said, he asked my son. He said, no, I didn't see her actually go out the door with that. And so he goes over, goes to the judge and has to dismiss the case. Why? Because there was no evidence that was admissible in court because although everybody knew she took it. He could not actually testify. He was not qualified to testify to what she actually did because he didn't actually see it. That's legally the role, the purpose of a witness is to prove something is true because this witness has seen it or has heard it. With me now? So you're now graduated from Evidence 101. Okay? All right. Now let's go back to what Jesus told them. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. In other words, you shall be witness, a witness that... Dis- now, remember what a witness does. A witness is giving testimony to establish that something is true that the person you're talking to or witnessing to doesn't yet know is true what a jury's role is. And Jesus is saying here, in the courtroom, the ultimate courtroom that there is, and the jury is the world of unbelievers, and the judge is God sitting on the throne, I have called you to step into the witness stand and give testimony of who I am. You can only testify to what you've seen and what you've heard. But notice he says, you shall be my witnesses. He doesn't say, go out witnessing. I'm not saying that's wrong. But a lot of times we go out witnessing, but we're not witnesses while we're witnessing. Our focus is to get people saved so I can come back with numbers. And you can hear it in our language. I got four people saved today. I look at it this way. It's like the old gunslinger of the West. 
I got four of them today, so I'm going to put four notches on my gun here. I got them. And see, that mentality has nothing to do with caring for them. It has nothing to do with the heart of God. Because God's not impressed with how many you got saved. He doesn't care with how many you got saved. He cares whether they're saved or not. So it's got to start by having His heart. Because if we're going to be a witness of Him, it's got to start with the heart He has. And if we don't have His heart in us, we can't be a witness of Him because who He really is is God's caring for them, God's love for them above everything else. I read a book a number of years, well, not too many years ago. I've read it several times talking about the love of God and the grace of God and it talks about a, uh, in a city, in this, a southern city, a large city, there was a huge gay rights uh, uh, march going on and, and assembly and, and on, on one side you had a whole bunch of churches out protesting with signs, you're all going to hell, all that stuff. On the other side there was a handful of people walking among them just sharing the love of Jesus. Which pleased, which was a witness for him? I mean, the placards and signs may be true, but what's he, is that witnessing him? And you shall be witnesses to me. In other words, you're on my, you're, you're on the, you're on the, on the prosecutor, you're on the, on the, on the plaintiff's side. And you're, you're on my list of witnesses, because you've got to give a list of your witnesses. So we're going to talk about today. Because a lot of times I think the reason we hold back, the reason we lack confidence, is because we don't understand what it is we're to do and what it is we have. All right, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We were at this conference and I already had kind of some, some scriptures planned out for today and a verse went off in me through one a verse somebody said there and it opened my eyes to see something that we need to talk about today. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Now, under the background here is this church had given Paul a lot of trouble. He had founded this church, and they were questioning his credentials, even though he was the apostle that had founded this church. So that's what the context here is we begin, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Paul wrote very often with a sarcastic style to make a point. In fact, if you look in verse chapter 11, he'll make several comments about how he's using, uh, 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 he's, he's using, I don't remember the exact words he uses, but he's using, uh, 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 he's, he's it's being sarcastic. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> he doesn't use the word sarcasm, but that's what he means. Do we need again, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? In other words, do I need a letter of of entry to prove who I am? Look at verse 2. You are our epistle or letter written in our hearts, look at this, known and read by all men. I don't need to write a letter to you of what God's done in your life through me, you are the letter. And that letter has been written in your hearts. And it is to be known and read, look at this, by all men. He isn't talking to them about how much they know, what they understand. He's talking about who they are and what has been deposited in them and what they've done with what's been deposited in them. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us. The word ministered means served, like a table waiter. Served by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Remember what Jesus told them they needed? They needed to be baptized, immersed in, saturated. The word baptized, don't get hung up on it. 
that it, it, it literally comes from a Greek word that they would use to describe the process of dyeing cloth, where they would take white cloth out into maybe red dye, and they would lower the white cloth down into the red dye, and as they lowered that white cloth into the red dye, what happened is that cloth would begin to absorb the dye into its fibers. And when they pulled it up, it was no longer white. Or as I've done sometimes, you get a stain on something, so you want to dye it and change the color so you can't see the stain. That's what we were. We were stains and blemishes. So the word baptized means to be not just immersed in, but to soak up absorb, be filled with what you were immersed in. That's what that word literally means if you go back and study its origin. Okay. Your letter ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, that is the heart. So this letter of who you are has been written in your heart, not by work, by, by, by the Holy Spirit. And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Look at this. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our f- sufficiency is from God. So one of the reasons we hold back is we don't think we're adequate. And I have a word from God for you. You're not adequate. You're not adequate to do anything for Him on your own. Your adequacy comes from Him. But if we'll allow Him to work in us, He will make you adequate. In Him. He will never make you adequate on your own. So I've learned over the years when I feel way down under the pressure, it's because I'm trying to carry it myself. And Jesus says, Come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and learn from me, for I'm meek and humble of heart. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So if the yoke you're carrying is weighing you down and it's heavy, it's not the one he gave you. Or you're carrying it alone. Because the image here is a yoke of oxen where you have two oxen bearing a yoke. He's your yoke partner. And when you go off in your own direction and stop following him, you're trying to carry that yoke on your own shoulders and you're not adequate to do that okay let's move on not that we're sufficient of ourselves nor think anything is coming from ourselves for our sufficiency verse 5 is from God who has made us sufficient or adequate as ministers as servers as table waiters of the new covenant this is his role as a, as a witness, which we're talking about. Not of the letter. So what we're to be a witness of, what we're to communicate about him, is not the letter, but the Spirit. Now look at this. For the letter, talking about a letter written in you, the letter of it kills, but the Spirit gives life. At that rally I was talking about, all those churches gathered on one side were, may have had placards that were the truth. But they were the letter of the truth. They weren't ministered in the spirit of the truth. Two years ago, we spent most of the year in Ephesians 4. And we saw near the end down in Ephesians 4.15, it says that the way we grow in a healthy way is by speaking the truth in love. That book in your lap is the truth. But if it's not spoken in love, it kills. It doesn't bring life. 
When I was first saved and felt a call to get in the ministry and went to Bible school, I preached my best sermons at my wife. And it didn't bless her. It didn't encourage her. It didn't strengthen her. It didn't change her. It just condemned her. Because I was using the word to make my point to her. Husbands, don't make that mistake. God was gracious. He was gracious. And I learned from my mistakes. This verse began to work in me. The letter of the law, that's that book in your lap, kills if it's not spoken out of the spirit of the heart of the one who wrote it. We've been over this before. We look at 1 Corinthians 13, talking about the gifts of the spirit. Chapter 12 lists the gifts, tells you some things about them, tells you something about their purpose. Chapter 14 talks about several specific gifts, but chapter 13 is the crucial one. Still talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Because basically says if you don't do them out of love, in God's eyes, they count as zilch, zip, nil, nothing. And everybody in church can be impressed with you and impressed with how the Spirit uses you, but in God's eyes, it has not helped His kingdom. In fact, it's hurt His kingdom. Why? Because it's not been ministered out of who He is. Because God is love. Remember who we're witnesses of. We're not witnesses of a cause. We're not even witnesses of what's right. But they're wrong, and I'm right. Wonderful. We're all wrong about something. We're called to be witnesses of Him. And that doesn't mean we look the other way at things that are wrong. I'm not talking about that. But as a witness, it has to start. If it doesn't come out of the spirit of love, of the spirit of who He is, it kills. It doesn't advance His kingdom. It doesn't represent Him. It represents you. And a lot of times we use it in self-defense or self-justification. So we feel better about ourselves because we're putting other, we're finding faults with other people. It makes us feel better about us. That doesn't represent him, because he never did that. We better move along, because this is getting too close to home. Oh, we got to go through verse seven though. But if the ministry of death, now what he's going to talk about here, just so we understand, he's going to talk about about Moses on the mountain, because the, the, the letter of the, he's talking about here is the letter of the law, but it's the Ten Commandments. You remember the story, God called Moses up on the mountain, and Moses was in the presence of God's glory for 40 days and 40 nights. God is life. He doesn't have life. He is it. He is the source of life. And Moses spent 40 days in the presence of the source of life to such a degree that he didn't, ha- didn't eat food. He wasn't on a 40-day fast. He just wasn't hungry. Remember what Jesus said? We talked to last week. He says, oh, I didn't need the McDonald's Mac- Big Mac. Why? Because I have meat to eat of you don't know of. And there's the big one. He didn't drink anything for 40 days. Now, you can go 40 days without food, but you can't go 40 days without water or some or liquid unless you're in the presence of life himself. And on that mountain, the first time, God, with his finger, oh, wow, writes the Ten Commandments in the stones. Whew. You talk about the Word of God. This is the Word, the word you have in your lap has been printed by, I don't know, Thomas Publishing or whatever publishing or electronic stuff like that. The, the Bible G, Moses brought down was handwritten by God. I was looking, we were looking while we were away at some, uh, I don't know, something about homes and things like that, and this guy built a library. And one of the volumes he had in there was a first edition 
of the King James Bible. Over 400 years old. The first printing of it. It's priceless. But that was still printed by men. This one was written with God's own finger. I want to talk about, because what it talks about here is when Moses came down off that mountain, he, by being in the presence of God, he had absorbed in his skin and in his clothes some of that glory, just like the red dye. He had ex- he absorbed some of that. And so when he came down the mountain, that glory was so strong reflecting off of him that the people couldn't stand. So he had to put a veil over himself to cover himself so people didn't, couldn't stand in his presence. So, well, that was back then. Now, I've read stories of Smith Wigglesworth and others. Wigglesworth was walking down the aisle of a train one day. Didn't say anything. Comes down the aisle past a priest sitting there. The priest fell out on the floor and says, My God, man, you convict me of my sins. May How might I get saved? Didn't say a word. So this can be, well, we'll see later on. We'll talk later on about it. Okay. So this is what the story, this is the context of the story here. But if the ministry of death, written, is talking about the law that was God gave Moses, engraved on stones, was glorious. In other words, the law was not meant to save anybody. It was the standard of righteousness that God has, holds. That's His standard of righteousness, is in essence, in those Ten Commandments. It is glorious. But it, was a, it, was, it led to condemnation. Why? Because it relied upon their own efforts to live it. And they couldn't, so it led them to condemnation. It exposed their sin. Paul talks about that in Romans 5. It exposed their sin. And that was God's plan, was for them to see their sin, so they would realize they can't live up to that standard themselves, so that they would realize they need a Savior to do it for them. So the plan, you see, if you look in Galatians, was to lead them to Christ. So that the children of Israel, in the middle of verse 7 there, children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Why? Because it didn't come from inside of him. It came from being exposed to it. How many, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the law written on those tablets, had glory, the ministry of righteousness, which is what comes through Christ, exceeds with much more glory. Now we're talking about our adequacy as a witness for Christ and what it is we're to be a witness of. Verse 10, so just follow this with me. For even what was made glorious, that's what Moses had, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. He's comparing the glory that Moses experienced by being in God's presence with the glory that we have through the new covenant within us by the Spirit. So when he talks about a glory that excels, he's talking about us. Verse 11. For if what it was is passing away, that was Moses, the glory on his face, was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, because we're going to see Moses began to get timid about this. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So it started out, he put a veil over his face so they could stand up and wouldn't fall down in his presence. But then Moses began to realize this was fading away. Shows you Moses was human. And he didn't want them to realize it was fading away, so he kept the veil there so that they wouldn't see that the glory was fading away. Why did the glory fade away? Because he was no longer in the presence of the source of it. Because what he brought down off the mountain didn't come from inside of him. It came off of his clothes because they had been, they'd been, in a sense, contaminated, in a good sense, by it. 
But now it's fading away and he's becoming, he's losing confidence in this. So he keeps the veil there so they don't see what's really going on inside. Before we point fingers at Moses, have we ever come to church wanting to present a veil over what's really going on inside of us? So that people think that what they saw last Sunday is still going on inside of us this Sunday? Well, we won't go there. Okay. Look at verse 14. But their minds, talking about the Jews at that time, were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. I've sat in when I was a lawyer. I attended some, uh, attended some uh, uh, teaching sessions by local rabbis. They'd, they'd bring, invite uh, people from their synagogue into the... And I, some of our lawyers I worked with were Jewish, so they invited me in, and I went and sat and listened to this rabbi teach. And we were going through scriptures in the Old Testament. He says, well, it was really hard to understand what this means. I'm thinking, I understand what it means. It's clear. And I realized there was a veil over their eyes. Because without Christ, you could not understand what this verse was really talking about. And it was just so obvious to me. And this is a trained scholar. But it's not mental. It's spirit discerned. Their minds were blinded, verse 14, for until this day that same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's what we've done. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now just Moses beheld the glory of the Lord, and we're beholding the glory of the Lord. Now where's this mirror that we're beholding it in? Well, we don't have to take the time to go there, but James talks in chapter 1 about this word is a mirror. This is the only mirror. See, when I got ready today, I, you know, to comb my hair, I look, and that mirror told me, repeated back exactly what I put in front of me. It didn't make me look any better, and it didn't make me look any worse. It just told the truth about what I look like at that moment. This mirror is like any other, is different than any other mirror. This is the one mirror that when you look into it, it will change what you look like into the image that it says you're like in here. In the tabernacle, we don't have time to go into detail. Outside the actual tabernacle, there was a big basin called the laver. And the laver was made of bronze, overlaid on the inside with glass so that it would be like a mirror reflecting back. And they filled it with water. Water represents the washing of the Word of God. So when they looked over into this laver, they saw a reflection of themselves not coming directly back at them, but reflecting back through the water, representing what it's like to look at yourself in this Word and see what God says about you back. Because when you meditate on what this Word says about who you are, then it will change you into who, you, who God's already made you to be. It doesn't make you something different, because when you came to Christ... He put Himself in you. But it makes you have an understanding of who you are. It's called renewing your mind. So that you'll begin to act like who you are and talk like who you are and think like who you are. Because who are you? You are a child of the living God. You're a joint heir with Christ Jesus. That's what qualifies you to be His witness because you are like Him on the inside. The problem is, what's on the inside isn't coming to the outside enough. We've talked about Romans chapter 12 verse 2, which says that you're transformed by the renewing of the mind. 
The word transformed, I know if you look at it quickly, it just means to be changed. But if you really study that word, what it says is that to take like what you are really on the inside and bring it to the outside so others can see it. Isn't that what a witness is? The lawyer, I've been, in, I've been preparing clients. And what you do is you don't, you know, they say, well, you know, what did you see? Well, I just saw this. Well, come on, what did you really see? And you begin to draw out of them what they really saw and what they really experienced. It was in there, but they were just giving you facts. But the emotion of it, the feeling of it, the sense of it, you want to draw out because you want the jury to know not just the facts of what happened. You want them to experience what happened the way that witness went through it. But you've got to draw out of them things that are in them because they don't know. They're just sitting in a witness stand and they just don't just say something until you have them re-experience. Not, not planting something new, but you're drawing something out that was really in there. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do in you. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Chapter 4. Therefore, because of all this, since we have this ministry, this service, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully. Oh, don't get me off on that one. Not taking the Word of God and pulling scriptures out and talk, making them prove your point. That's what a dishonest lawyer does. But take the facts the way they are and communicate them. Take the Word for what it says and teach that. Do that. Believe that. But by manifestation, revealing of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel, our good news, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Look at this. Whose minds, whose minds, the God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest, look at this, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, that we're talking about the glory that's in you, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Satan is blinding the eyes of your relatives. He's blinding the eyes of the people at work. He's blinding the eyes of the people around you. Why? So that they can't see the light of the gospel, of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's in you. The question today is, we're called to be fishers of men. We're called to be as witnesses. Are we adequate? Are we adequate? I suggest to you that what they need is in you now. They don't see the truth. I've got relatives that I've shared with them and talked to them. And you can just feel the blindness there. They want to, but there's just a blindness there. Look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Christ Jesus. So you don't hear a lot of teaching about being a bondservant. You hear a lot of teachings about the blessings of God and the, you know, the kingdom of God and the glory of God, but a lot, you know, a lot about being a bondservant. That's who Paul saw him, how Paul saw himself. We're bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God, look at this, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness at creation, who has also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Genesis tells us that in the beginning God created everything and then so that we could see His creation He spoke light into existence. Think of that power. Let there be light. 
suddenly you can see what was already there, but you couldn't know it was there because you didn't have light with which to see it. The world is shrouded in darkness. And they cannot see in that darkness the glory of God that's on the face of Jesus Christ. They can't see it. How are they going to see it? Because the same God that said, let there be light, has caused that light to be deposited inside of you and inside of me. And we wonder who we are. The enemy works on us to tell us, you know, who would listen to you. But if you notice, all of that thinking and all of those thoughts are something about you. Well, you're not adequate. You don't know enough. You haven't been to Bible school. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray enough. You don't do this enough. You haven't done... Oh, and your past. They knew your past. They'd never listen to you. It's all focused on who you are and how inadequate you are. But we're not called to be witnesses of ourselves. The only part of a witness that you and I are is we are witnesses of what His grace can do. But we are to be witnesses to Him, of Him. And God has deposited in us His glory. Verse 6 again. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Get this picture again. The power of God that just says, if you promise to not tell anybody, this is the Big Bang. God said, He'd already created things, but you can't see them by the light. For every soul alive on the face of this earth right now, God's grace, His love, His glory, His provision, His salvation, His deliverance, His healing has been poured out, paid for, and is just waiting to be lavished upon. They can't see it. They're blinded to it. There's some just don't want to. They just they don't want to believe they want to do what they want to do. But the vast majority are just blind. And God can't do another let there be because he already did that. This is not a natural light. This is now a spiritual light. And so they can't see that light with their eyes. They have to see this light with the inner eyes. So God had to put that light in beings that were like Him so that that light could shine forth from them the same way that first light shined forth from His lips. Oh, this is going to be good. Just, oh, Lord, I never saw this before. This set sticks week up. Just as that light could not be seen unless he opened his mouth. So the light that he's put in us can't be seen unless we open our mouth. I got to make a note of that. (laughs) 
All right, you'll hear that again. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light so we can see of the knowledge so we can understand of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now look at this, verse 7. This is where we're headed up to. For we have, not when you get to heaven, not when you become fully consecrated, not when you get your act together, we have, because this is a church that did not have its act together. We're not talking about the most spiritual, disciplined, mature church Paul had. We're talking about the least disciplined, the most immature church he had. He says, we have. Look at this. I want you to see in your own Bible. We have this treasure, this glory he's talking about, in earthen Some translations will say clay vessels. Vessels in those days were made of clay, and that means they were brittle. They could break. They could chip. They could get cracks in them, or they could just shatter. God has put His glory, the glory that Moses saw on the mountain, that faded away because he got away from the source of it, so he had to put a veil God has not put His presence somewhere on a mountain so that we go on Sunday mornings and visit it. And then we get so filled up with how blessed we are and we take that with us. And But again, during the week, it kind of fades away so we come back on Wednesday night and get a little shot again. And then we kind of go back and we need to do those things. But, but you're not coming here to get into the presence of God so that we can get some of that glory and just, you know, and, but it's going to fade away as we go through the day, go through the week. Why? Because we're not like Moses. We're not going up to the top of a mountain and have a mountaintop experience and now that affects people around us but then it begins to fade away so we want to pretend that we're still spiritual even though we know things aren't where they need to be which is what Moses was doing. But God has caused His glory to shine in our hearts. Why? How? He put the Spirit, His Spirit in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Romans 8, 11 the glory of God, the light that the world needs is in you right now, in me right now. You sitting there, me standing there. The glory of God. So this treasure, the precious treasure of the glory of God, the presence of God, the light of God, has been deposited in us, God knowing that we chip and we can crack at times and discolor at times, get nicks in us, get worn edges on us. He knows all that. But look at why he did that. He's put his treasure, his treasure was so precious to him, in earthen vessels that the Excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. <laughs> I just saw something. You know, when you're an earthen vessel and you got a little pinhole there and a crack there and a chip there, guess what that does? The light shines through it. <laughs> Doesn't it? The light shines through the crack, the light shines through the weakness, the light shines through. Because you and I are witnesses of Him. We're not witnesses of how much we've learned about Him. We're not witnesses of anything but what He has done in our lives. Remember what a witness can only testify of what he has seen or heard, has personal knowledge about. So the question is, are you adequate? No. But God has put in you what they need. God has put in you what He cannot do Himself. He's put in you and me His glory. They're hungry, they're hurting, they're lost, they're desperate, they're lonely, they're in bondage. And we look at those situations and feel so overwhelmed, so we sit here, blessed by how blessed we are at church. 
when all of this has been put in us so we can go out. And we'll end with this scripture. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, he's not talking about the lantern they were carrying around, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify, recognize the glory of your Father who is in heaven. We live in a world of darkness. They don't understand why things aren't working. They don't understand why there's a shooting in Colorado. They don't understand why these things can happen. And you and I look at it, it's obvious to us. But they can't see because their eyes are blinded. And we get into the issues with them and the issues about this. And it's not a matter of issues. It's a matter of seeing something that we have inside of us. He's made you adequate because he's put himself in you. All we've got to do is open our mouth. All we've got to do is go. All we've got to do is be willing to give of ourselves. And he will flow into their lives. And whether they accept him or not is between them and him. But we are called to be fishers of men.